Two and a Half Admins, episode 161. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you two have done a webinar about OpenZFS data replication. Us? Talk about OpenZFS? That doesn't sound right. No, it doesn't, does it? Somehow for only an hour. Granted, it was a 45-minute talk (laughs) 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 that ran for an hour, but yeah. Alan and I got together to uh, do another Clara webinar. The webinar itself is over, but it will be online by the time you're hearing this. And we talk about data replication. So if you've ever been curious about the what, the how, the why, we go into all of it. We talk about how to replicate using simple commands at the command line from ZFS itself. Give a couple examples of using Syncoid, my own orchestration replication tool. We talk about resuming replication when it's interrupted. We talk about delegating permissions so that you can have a more secure replication between systems. It's all there. Yeah, and we take live questions for the audience and share a bunch of interesting anecdotes from our experience as well. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Cerabyte roadmaps ceramic nano memory storage. Now, this just sounds like total vaporware to me, but uh, you two seem to have been sucked in by it. So have at it. It looks quite interesting. So a German startup uh, has basically created a ceramic-based storage technology that will enable up to 100 petabytes of archive-grade cartridges and up to one exabyte of ceramic tape. One of the things that I found compelling about this is that uh, you know we're talking about very large densities of data, you know, huge volumes on relatively small platforms, but the concept is not at all pie in the sky, really. I mean, we're basically just talking about using a laser to punch very, very tiny punch cards. And this is a well-proven technology. Above and beyond the actual punch cards I just referenced, the other thing that you might easily compare this to is, uh, you know, some of Microsoft's recent efforts at storing incredibly high densities of data on glass, where, again, it's the same thing. You're just talking about burning imperfections into glass. Now, in this case, it's ceramic, not glass. And um, I don't really know what the the differences, you know, in the media are or why this company might pick the one versus Microsoft picking the other. But I do know that, you know, Microsoft's, uh, what do they call it? Holocube? Sounds right? I don't think it is right. Uh, Whatever Microsoft's version was, I remember Microsoft didn't even want to talk about the amount of time it actually took to burn one of those. They just wanted to talk about how, you know, incredibly reliable, you know, over centuries and potentially millennia that right once read mini storage was. These folks are actually talking about transfer rates, and uh, it's a lot more concrete than most of the press releases that we got from Microsoft on their laser burned into glass stuff, even though that stuff was already, you know, in use with some partners at, you know, universities or whatever. So I think the signs are good on this one. And I think the very simplicity of the technology in in modern terms makes it a lot more likely we'll actually see this stuff sometime soon. Yeah. And so this is basically 50 to 100 atom thick storage media. And they say that it will be stable even against extreme heat, water, floods, and electrical surges. And they basically equate it to using a laser or a particle beam to etch really small QR code onto the surface and be able to read it back later with like a microscope or whatever. What's really interesting is that they take a substrate that's about 100 to 300 micrometers thick or five micrometers for the tape and then coat it with a ceramic coating. That's about 10 nanometers thick. So the technology roadmap scales from 100 nanometers down to the 3 nanometer size. 
corresponding to aerial densities of gigabytes to terabytes per square centimeter. And it's read back with a high-resolution microscopic imaging technology, or an electron beam. Which, again, is very much like Microsoft's Project Silica, which that's the proper name for that project, by the way. It's Project Silica. And um, we know for a fact Microsoft has been burning roughly seven terabytes into square glass platters about the size of a DVD for several years now. So Joe made the sneering vaporware comment, but this doesn't really seem very vaporous to me. Now, I don't know anything about the parent company. There's no promise that a grifter couldn't actually pick a plausible grift for once, but uh, just in terms of the technological stuff, it, it all seems to check out pretty well from here. They're saying the initial versions of this that are coming out will allow for up to 10 petabytes in a rack, which isn't that far off what you can do with just hard drives now, but scaling it up, they're looking at their Sarah memory cartridges in the 2025 to 2030 era, being able to get that to 100 petabytes per rack. And the tape coming out in 2030 to 2035, getting up to one exabyte. The other nice thing that we can mention about all this is that uh, the ceramic that they're using, now this is a write-once-read mini-media. However, when you're done with your, you know, however many petabytes of ceramic storage, the company says that the tapes and cartridges are entirely 100% recyclable. So that's pretty cool. And to kind of get to Jim's point out, Microsoft won't mention how what the speeds are like. Cerevite says that it's ceramic nano memory enables write speeds in the gigabytes per second class, providing fast data ingest for data center systems, and can write up to 2 million bits with a single laser pulse. And that's how they get those kind of write throughputs. So you're talking SSD throughput then? Not necessarily, but to that degree. Like, I think they were talking about gigabytes per second in a rack across a whole bunch of these, not uh, individually, right. but even then, that's not very fast compared to NVMe, but it's a lot faster than most tape and, and some of the other things that are like, you know, we're going to etch this on glass and keep it forever. Two megabits per laser pulse can add up to a pretty serious amount of throughput. You can usually fire lasers rather rapidly. But this just strikes me as vaporware, not in the kind of sense of this company is just out to scam people, but they've got this technology that works in the lab, but then scaling it up to actual manufacturing is a different story. And we've just heard these kind of things over and over again with this fanciful new technology that's like three to five years away. They're saying the version they have can do 10 petabytes per rack. And yeah, in 2025 to 2030, they'll get to 100 petabytes. But they have a version that works now. It's not just that in five years, we'll have something we can sell you. Which part of this technology seems so unreasonable to you, Joe? Because we're just talking about a laser that's, you know, being blipped many times a second to write pulses into these things. Well, do you not think lasers scale into consumer technology? Do you remember perhaps the CD-ROM, the DVD-ROM, and the Blu-ray player? Or are you worried that lasers that are powerful enough to actually burn holes in media won't scale for consumer technology? At which point I might remind you of the CD-RW, DVD-RW, and Blu-ray writer. There's just nothing very fantastical here. Because this is not a product that is actually on the market, it's always possible that it won't come to fruition. But I don't see any markers of the kind of like, ah, this looks dodgy that you keep grumbling about over there. Well, maybe it's just because I've been burnt so many times by vaporware that I feel like make it an actual product 
even if it's an expensive product, like some of the, the huge hard drives and SSDs that you can buy now, make it so that I can actually buy it and then I'll take it seriously. Every single one of those huge hard drives and solid state drives that you're talking about that, you know, you only see about when you can buy it, it's just because you didn't notice. Because I promise you those manufacturers were talking about the technology that enabled those densities for five or six years before ever releasing a product that used them. Seagate with Hammer, which is using a laser to on in a regular hard drive, has been talking about that technology for 10 years. It's just only now finally shipping to Facebook and, and companies like that. And Western Digital's been talking about Mammer forever. Yep. It just doesn't sound as good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this news article comes from this company presenting at the Storage Developers Conference to get people that make things like giant tape libraries to be interested in working with them to ship a product using this technology. Yeah, this is not like an Indiegogo reaching out to like Linux <laughs> yeah. hobbyists at home. Yeah, fair enough. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'll totally eat my words in 2020, whatever, when this arrives and replaces tape for archive storage. The second version of it literally is tape, just with a ceramic coating on the tape instead of a magnetic one. Yeah. We'll get Joe a special coffee cup <laughs> that will actually, <laughs> we'll just print like all kinds of disgusting things on it with the laser in the language that these things use. The whole coffee <laughs> cup will just be a never-ending string of profanity written in uh, ceramic ease. Let's do some feedback then. Josh writes, I just finished listening to the episode where you were talking about the Internet Archive. One thing I do when I find random Reddit posts or a tutorial on some random webpage is exactly what Jim suggested, self-host it. There's a service called Archivey. It's a self-hosted Internet Archive of sorts. It basically takes a web URL passes it into a static web page and imports it into a database for you to reference whenever you want. I haven't spun up an instance of it yet to play with it, but it looks really cool. If you want to self-host content, this could certainly streamline the workflow a lot, it, essentially because of the way that it does make it easier to turn dynamic content into static for you. It saves a lot of otherwise potentially very annoying steps for trying to do the same thing manually. The one thing that I will mention, the only real drawback to your own personal archive instance is it does lose you one of the advantages of using the Internet Archive, which is that you have very, very limited control of the Internet Archive. If you ask archive.org to save a link for you and then you use it as a reference, anybody looking at that can feel pretty assured that it is legitimate. It genuinely was the content of that page at that time. Whereas if you spin up your own archivey and you use that as you know a reference for something, you can still show somebody the thing, but you no longer have that sort of, um, it's almost like using a notary you know, to verify that something is legit. And you do lose that aspect of it because it's easier for somebody to argue, oh, well, that's your server and you just made it look like whatever you wanted it to look like. Can't hurt to do both though, right? Stick it on archive.org as well as your own personal copy. I think we've already established that this is very much a belt and braces show. So yeah, suspenders for my fellow Americanskis. I also uh, heard of a similar project called archivebox.io that someone else recommended. I've not tried it, but it looks to do very much the same type of thing. It's got a uh, curl pipe to bash install. So uh... if you scroll down, it has actual packages for the operating systems <laughs> as well as dockers and all the other. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's just amusing when I see a curl pipe to bash or curl pipe to sh. Curl pipe to pseudo bash is my favorite. Yeah. I'll give them credit here for using actual born shell. 
All right, Scott says, a bit late for you, Jaru, but there does exist a way to bypass the Microsoft account requirement on Windows 11 Home. When you're on the initial setup screen, before you connect it to the network, you can hit Shift plus F10 to pull up a command prompt. Enter OOBE backslash bypass NRO and hit Enter. It'll restart the setup process and you'll have the option to create a local account. Now, you can also use Rufus to just create you a local account when you put the ISO onto the USB stick, which is what I have done recently. But nevertheless, this is an excellent tip, Scott. Thank you very much. If you're stuck with Windows Home, that is, in fact, an excellent tip because Windows Home with local accounts is better than Windows Home without local accounts. But I will reiterate once more that you're still stuck with Windows Home. You still don't have MMC. You still don't have an RDP server. And uh, also, the the other thing they'll point out is you don't know how long this trick will continue to work. Mm. It will work until Microsoft closes that one off. They'll probably make another backdoor for themselves to use after that until enough people find out about that one and they'll close that one off again. Kind of like you remember when they were pushing so many notifications to like, hey, download Windows 10, upgrade to Windows 10, do an in-place install of Windows 10 on your Windows 7. Like you just... There were always ways to turn it off, and then those ways would mysteriously stop working a couple of months later. I would expect something kind of similar here. It'll probably take more than a couple of months, but I don't think this will work forever, and you'll still have Windows Home after you do it. And if you both don't like the idea of having a couch with the cushions ripped out in the form of Windows Home, and you don't like the idea of spending the money on Windows Pro, well, there's Linux, and there's FreeBSD. Yeah, but sometimes, you know... You've got to set it up for someone and they've bought it. And what can you do? So I had similar problems just a couple of weeks ago after our previous episode where my dad has a Lenovo like two liter PC he got a couple of years ago and it just stopped working. It wouldn't even power on. So I suspected the power supply. So I ordered a replacement from Lenovo because of course it's a weird special form factor. Plugged it in, still absolutely nothing. I think the motherboard's toast. So I decided to copy the data off and put it on an old NUC I had that I had recently upgraded my TV machine and now had this old one that would work. But it turns out the serial number for his Windows is tied to that hardware and wouldn't work on the new PC. And there was no way to extract it from the BIOS on the old PC because it wouldn't power on anymore. And if you had done the right things with having a Microsoft account, you maybe could have done it, but creating a Microsoft account after the fact doesn't help. And then it forced him to have a Microsoft account now where he didn't before. And it was all kinds of a a mess to get his machine up and running again, specifically because he bought a computer that happened to have Windows Home on it. And then they're like, oh, you can click here to buy a license for Windows Pro and solve all these problems. It'll cost more than a new PC. (laughs) The PC I had bought for my TV that freed up this old hardware I used for his PC, I could have bought him a whole new PC with a licensed Windows 11 on it cheaper than Windows 10 Pro license on his existing old machine. Okay, this episode is sponsored by people who support us with PayPal and Patreon. Go to 2.5admins.com support for details of how you can support us too. Two and a half admins is part of the late night Linux family, which means that for $10 a month on Patreon, you get access to an RSS feed that contains all the late night Linux family shows without adverts like this. There's also an option to get just this show ad-free for $5 a month if you prefer. Some of the episodes are even released a day or so early for Patreon supporters. The ad market isn't great at the moment, and frankly, it's hard to find sponsors that don't want to do tracking bullshit. 
But so far, we've managed to resist that. So if you like what we do and can afford it, it would be great if you could support us at 2.5admins.com slash support. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Paul writes, I recently gave my desktop an overdue upgrade and I now want to add a few drives to use it as network storage. This will be my first foray into ZFS. I've realized I'm not sure I want the ongoing hassle of something that isn't shipped in Fedora's kernel, but I'm also not keen to switch to using Ubuntu. And he's got a couple of questions. The first one is, are there any downsides to running ZFS inside a KVM VM using pass-through of an HPA card? Will it be a rock-solid experience? Any pitfalls to be aware of? So in general, pitfalls, not really. If you're passing through the whole HPA, then ZFS inside the VM is going to have direct access to the hard drives, and you get rid of all the issues that you might see with virtualization in the hard drives. And then if you're doing similar para-virtualization type things for the network interface, then it's not really going to be a slowdown. And that is a very common setup. Lots of people doing that also with something like VMware with ESX to have all the storage of the VMware backed by the VMware itself via passing through an HPA to a machine that is then going to run ZFS on the inside. The only thing I'll mention about that is uh, if performance is important to you, be sure not to starve that VM of RAM. It's a complex topic because everybody, <laughs> on the one hand, you've got folks out there saying, oh, well, you can't run ZFS without, you know, 64 gigabytes of RAM and, you know, blah, 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 and which is utterly untrue. However, once you start severely constraining it, you know, down to less RAM than you would typically find in a desktop system, you can absolutely start seeing some pretty significant decreases in uh, in write speed, not just in, you know, how frequently you get cache hits, but also just in how quickly the, the file system can get data onto disk. None of this is crippling. It's not like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to, you know, tolerate this machine or whatever. But when I was doing a lot of heavy benchmarking a few years ago, I flirted for a while of doing exactly this technique and, you know, passing everything down into a VM and benchmarking within the VM, which would, you know, make it easier for me to switch back and forth from, you know, BSD to Linux and what have you versus doing complete reinstalls on, you know, a bare metal host. But the problem was that, particularly in terms of RAM constraint, it was not subtle, the difference. I mean, we're talking with like, you know, an eight drive Rust array in various different topologies. And, you know, I would see writes to that array. Again, we're, you know, we're talking vague recollections from a couple of years ago, but various FIO workloads, you might see what had been, you know, 250 megabytes per second throughput drop to like 190 does that make the system unusable? No, absolutely not. However, if you're sitting there like, oh, I need my hair to get lit on fire every time I move a file on or off of my system, then eh, virtualization might not be the best answer for you. It's funny that you say don't starve the VM of RAM because that's your usual advice, right? Because you want the caching to be happening on the host rather than in the VM. Correct, but the caching in this case needs to happen inside the VM because the whole reason I want the caching to happen on the host is the host has a better insight into what those drives need to do. But when you've passed the entire host bus adapter as well as all the drives connected to it down directly to the VM, the VM is the only thing that can cache what goes on to those drives. The host literally doesn't even know what's happening. Yeah, and I would say uh, kind of to Jim's advice there, don't give your ZFS machine less RAM than you would give your desktop if you want to run a browser on it. 
that's about the rule of thumb, right? It, it, it needs at least as much RAM as a browser with a bunch of tabs open. And if you can't give it that, then maybe it's not the right solution for you. But it doesn't need to be 64 gigs, despite my comments about how much RAM browsers use. <laughs> His second question then, I'm thinking of going with BSD for the ZFS VM instead of Ubuntu LTS. Is running BSD as a guest on Linux KVM a dependable setup? I think the answer is yes. Would you recommend a particular BSD variant? I think the answer is free BSD, but take it away. Yeah, so running in KVM, for sure. Almost every cloud thing out there, even the newer Amazon instances, are KVM-based. So I have a bunch of FreeBSD VMs at various cloud providers that are using KVM, and it works very well. All of them are running ZFS because I'm me. And then particular variant, it depends what you're after. But for me, it'd always be just vanilla FreeBSD. But if you want a GUI and so on, then one of the NAS distributions might make a better sense in that case. It depends what your use case is. By GUI, you mean web GUI rather than desktop? Yes. This was something that was kicking in my head as I was reading this question. I was thinking, well, almost certainly vanilla FreeBSD, but some folks aren't really comfortable in a completely console-only environment. If you expect a traditional full desktop environment, then I would strongly recommend GhostBSD rather than vanilla FreeBSD. Good point, yes. There are others. Uh, there's Midnight BSD is relatively popular. I haven't tried that one, so I can't personally recommend it, but I have kicked the tires quite thoroughly on GhostBSD and it... Strongly recommend if you want a full desktop, that's really the way to go, not vanilla FreeBSD. Yeah, I think Midnight BSD is targeted more for smaller hardware, whereas GhostBSD is very much doubled down on ZFS. So, especially in this case, that is what I would recommend is GhostBSD, especially, you know, if it's a Fedora user who would like a desktop out of the box rather than I'm just going to SSH in and run ZFS commands that I know. Yeah, and it's got Mate desktop as well, which is excellent. I can already hear vanilla FreeBSD fans angrily saying you don't need that and FreeBSD is a great desktop OS and, and yada, 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 yada. If you want to build it yourself. Yes, you can absolutely install X and, you know, Window Manager and all that good stuff. But A, you've got to install them piece by piece. And B, once you've done that, you're not done because there is a lot of fine tuning that goes into producing the full on desktop experience in GhostBSD. And if you just install the necessary components and get yourself a desktop on FreeBSD, it is extremely laggy and painful to use by comparison, in my experience. I don't know about laggy, but it's definitely a lot more work, and GhostBSD will be a much nicer experience. I can tell you for a fact, it's a lot laggier in a KVM hypervisored virtual machine <laughs> than GhostBSD's desktop interface is, because guess how I tested them? I've never considered a GUI on my storage machines, but that doesn't mean people shouldn't. Pretty much all of my client-facing ones have GUIs on them because I don't need them, but it makes the customers feel better. And it doesn't really hurt me anything to provide it, so I just go ahead and do it. Now, my own storage-only server sitting in the rack, you know, right next to me, yeah, I, I didn't bother installing a GUI on it. It's completely console-only. How much of an overhead does the GUI add? Not much. It's a bit of RAM yeah. it's using and maybe some CPU when it does stuff. Especially if you don't have something heavy that's constantly doing stuff in the background, you can run into issues if you install like a big thing like KDE and it decides that it's going to have its file indexer try to index all the files on your file server, mm -hmm. the Akinadi or whatever it's called, and be like, why is this process over here chewing up all the I.O. on my system? Oh, it's trying to index every file for the its version of the Mac Finder menu or whatever. 
Does FreeBSD still install uh, Locate by default, Alan? Yes, but it only updates once on Sundays, and it is smart enough not to do anything too crazy. Well, the reason I ask is because the the first FreeBSD machine that was physically in my possession that I, I built for myself in the uh, very it was either the it was either ninety nine or two thousand. I thought that I had been hacked one night because you know this machine sit in my living room, and I had installed Samba on it and I was using it as my network file server. But that was literally the only thing that it did because I wanted to give myself experience administering it, and I knew the only way that would happen is if I actively used it. I didn't want to use it as a desktop, so that left, okay, I'll just store all my files on it. And one night on like a Saturday night, I'm sitting on AOL Instant Messenger (laughs) talking to friends in the same room, and the hard drives start going nuts. And I'm like, Jesus, my hard drives have been chattering for like two hours now, and there's nothing happening what is going on? It, you know, long story short, like four hours later, I finally figured out it was the freaking locate process updating its index, which I was very unhappy about. <laughs> Linux distributions seem to have largely stopped including mlocate, which they used to install for the same reason and same purpose, worked the same way. And I was quite glad when they did because something like that service seems okay when you've only got like a desktop worth of data. But when it busily decides it's time to apply itself to 12 terabytes of storage on Rust and you're like, oh, it's okay. It only runs once a week. Yeah, it doesn't finish in a week, man. (laughs) Well, Paul asked, would you recommend a particular BSD variant? I'm assuming he was meaning FreeBSD versus OpenBSD and you don't want to go with OpenBSD because it has no ZFS support, right? Right. So like there are use cases for OpenBSD, but in particular, because you're after ZFS, that means only FreeBSD is an option. NetBSD's attempted to port ZFS, but I don't think they ever finished. And Dragonfly doesn't have ZFS either. Right. So you're definitely looking at FreeBSD or something FreeBSD based. Yeah. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. I'm at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.